crack down a Bible and get with me to 1 John chapter 3, doing a series now on the meaning of Christmas, and uh, what we're looking at is not the storyline per se of the arrival of Christ. Normally, that's kind of the way that church unfolds during the season. We look at the narratives, we look at the arrival of our Savior, but instead we're going to a letter written by John where he gives us a few purpose statements. He tells us here's the reason why the Lord came. And so we're in 1 John chapter 3. I'm going to read verses 1 to 10 and then we'll pray and we'll get to work. It reads like this. See what great love the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called children of God. And that is what we are. The reason the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Dear friends, now we are children of God, and what we will be has not yet been made known. But we know that when Christ appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. All who have this hope in him purify themselves just as he is pure. Everyone who sins breaks the law. In fact, sin is lawlessness. But you know that he appeared so that he might take away our sins. And in him is no sin. No one who lives in him keeps on sinning. No one who continues to sin has either seen him or known him. Dear children, do not let anyone lead you astray. The one who does what is right is righteous, just as he is righteous. The one who does what is sinful is of the devil, because the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. No one who is born of God will continue to sin, because God's seed remains in them. They cannot go on sinning because they have been born of God. This is how we know who the children of God are and who the children of the devil are. Anyone who does not do what is right is not God's child, nor is anyone who does not love their brother and sister. This is the word of the Lord. Lord, we pray right now as we open your word that you would speak to us. Help us to hear your voice loud and clear. We pray in your name. Amen. Amen. So here we find two purpose statements, one overarching priority for Christians, and one incredible promise. So the two purpose statements, and this is the meaning of Christmas. This is where John, in his letter, says, here's why this happened. Here's why the arrival of Christ is so significant. He gives us two different reasons here in our text. The first one is to take away sins. Look at verse 5. But you know that he appeared. He, he came. He arrived. The Latin word for that is advent. He showed up. And, you know, advent season is the time where we're reflecting on this. But he says he appeared, the Lord himself appeared, so that he might take away our sins. And in him, there is no sin. One of the reasons why Christ came is to deal with sin. And sin, in my opinion, is the great human dilemma. As I've thought about it more and more, I believe that sin is prevalent and persistent, that it shows up in surprising places, and it, it wreaks incredible havoc in all sorts of different ways. And it is the great human issue. And so... Uh, my perspective on it is most people have a very wimpy understanding of sin. They don't, most of us don't have as beefy of a theology of sin as we need to be successful 
in this life. And so really what we're getting at here is the question, what is wrong with the world? And in fact, there's a story about a somewhat famous author named G.K. Chesterton, and the London Times wrote an editorial inviting readers to respond to it. And the question was, what is wrong with the world? Now, that's a very, very good question and a provocative you know, editorial piece that resulted, I'm sure, in quite a few different ideas floating around. But I was thinking through it. How would we answer that question today? What is wrong with the world? If we're to look at the world, what would we say is wrong with it? Now, based off of conversations with a lot of Christians and based off of the cultural commentary of the day, both from popular level preachers and talking heads, here's how I think most people would answer the question. The problem with the world is that there are people who don't think like me. There are people who have different opinions from me, and they're out there wreaking havoc. The world is broken because of them. And you can easily fill that in. They, they voted differently than I did. They have different ideas about the world than I do. The problem with the world is them. And the way, so that would be the diagnosis. But what would your solution then be? It would be, we have to fix what they're breaking. We have to find a way to reverse some of these trends that they are enacting. And in fact, as I talk to a lot of people, the, the solution often comes in the form of a political solution. If we want to fix the world, the world is broken, and if we want to fix it, we need to, here, here's a, a common thread that I hear, we actually need to get legislation to reflect God's character. That's a great idea, is it not? It's a wonderful idea, it's very important. But let's just be honest here, that is woefully inadequate. If you're reading the Bible, if you understand sin at all, legislation is not the solution. Enacting better laws is not the way forward. In fact, that is woefully inadequate. In fact, if you look at the Bible, look at the experiment of the Israelites. What was their social law? God's word. Everything about their civil law was actually God's moral law. And how did that go? Not very well, right? They had all of the right rules, all of the right instructions, all of the right things in place, and it didn't produce righteousness. In fact, in many ways, it provoked sinfulness. So for us to say the way forward, that what's wrong with the world is that there are other people who are messing it up, and the way forward is to try to get legislation to reflect God's law, we, we are, we're not living up to what God wants us to do. That is a woefully inadequate solution. Now, it is important. The Bible does say the law is able to restrain sin. We need laws that reflect God's character. That's a, that's a good thing. That's a great thing. In fact, Martin Luther King Jr. once said it like this, because somebody brought this argument up to him. And they, he, you know, the law can't produce righteousness. And he, he replied in this way, it may be true that the law cannot make a man love me, but it might keep him from lynching me. And I think that's pretty important too. So having good laws is important. Having good laws is very important, but it really doesn't properly address the issue of sin. It doesn't really help us to get at what we need in this world. What's wrong with this world is much deeper than a bunch of enemies out there creating problems for us. G.K. Chesterton, when he, well, the way I heard the story, I'm not sure exactly how accurate it is, but let me just show it to you. He responded to that editorial piece, and he wrote this. He said, Dear Sir, 
in answer to your question, what's wrong with the world? I am. Sincerely, G.K. Chesterton. That, in my opinion, is much closer to the biblical vision of the problem with humanity. It is to look at the world, to see all of the brokenness and all of the pain, and to recognize that there's something about that in here. There's something about that problem that I see manifest in the world in my own heart. This is the correspondence that I actually found from Chesterton. It reads like this. In one sense, and that the eternal sense, the thing is plain. The answer to the question, what is wrong, is or should be, I am wrong. And until a man can give that answer, his idealism is only a hobby. When we start thinking about what's wrong with the world, we have to come to the conclusion that we're a part of it. And the issue of sin is the greatest problem that we face, and we ourselves have these issues in us. When I think about it, let me just personalize it. When I think about you know, how I respond to being a parent or to being a, a husband in a healthy marriage, and I see the way that I react to all of that sometimes, and I'm embarrassed by it. Or when I think about being a pastor, I mean, good grief, my job is to read the Bible, study the Bible, apply the Bible, and try to help you do the same. I mean, I have a tremendous advantage in this thing. And I still look at myself and I go, some of my motivations are so unhealthy and impure, it surprises me. So, so sin is something that is resident within us. And it is the, the great problem in our world. And so I hope that you can agree with me and with G.K. Chesterton and with John and, and even with the Apostle Paul and say, you know what's wrong with the world? We are. And it's because of the sin in the world that we desperately need a Savior. Here's how the Apostle Paul puts it in 1 Timothy 1.15. He says, here's a trustworthy saying deserving of full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the worst. And he says that not simply because he made some tremendous errors in his life, but also because he knew his own heart. And I can read a passage like that and say, that's true of me. I know my own heart. I am the worst of sinners. So the problem is sin, and that is one of the reasons why Christ has came, has come. He came so that he might take away our sin, and in him there is no sin. This is a job that is, he is uniquely qualified for. He was blameless. He was sinless. He was the one who was able to stand in our place and take our guilt and our condemnation and our punishment, and he was able to gift his righteousness. Theologians call this the great exchange. He takes our penalty and he gifts what he rightly deserves, his perfect obedience. That is the good news of the gospel. That is why Christ has come. He has come to take away the sins of the world. And in fact, John 1 Verse 29, when John is first introduced to Christ, he's in a crowd of people, and the Lord walks up, and this is what is declared over the Lord. Behold, or look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. One of the reasons why Christmas happened is so that Christ might come and make atonement for sin, and we desperately need that. Purpose statement number one, he came to deal with sin Purpose statement number two, he came to destroy the work of the devil. Look at verse eight, halfway through it. It says, the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. One of the reasons why he showed up is because there is an enemy and that enemy is wreaking havoc. Now, what is the devil's work? Look with me at the first half of verse eight. 
The one who does what is sinful is of the devil because the devil has been sinning from the beginning. And that gives us a clue as to where we should look. At the very beginning, at the front end of the Bible, in fact, the book that is titled after the beginnings, Genesis, we find the devil at play there. And what is he doing? He is tempting humanity and enticing them into disobedience. And he's doing this with kind of a two-pronged strategy. One, he questions the authority of God. Did God really say that? Did God actually say what you think he said? So looking at the, the word of God that was revealed to Adam and Eve, and he says, listen, are you sure that you have the information correct? Are you sure that that's actually what God says? And when that's established, he takes that second step and he says, well, maybe that's true, but maybe that's not actually what God means. Maybe what God is saying is wrong. Now that strategy started at the beginning, but it carries on even today. The work of the devil is to question the authority of God and entice others to disobey promising that they will experience likeness to God when they take matters into their own hands. What we do, humans, you and I, what we do is we say, I will be the one who determines what's right and wrong. I will be the one who is able to discern good and evil. That is at the essence of sin. And it disregards God. In fact, D.A. Carson calls this the de-godding of God. It's saying, look, I'm, I'm going to take you out of the equation, God, I'll put myself in that role. I'll be, the, I'll be the one who decides what good and evil actually is. That's the work of the devil. He wants us to disregard God. He wants us to set aside God, to have no reference to God in the way that we interpret the world in which we live. That, uh, that strategy, he, he has continued to use that strategy over and over again. And in fact, I, I really do believe that there's a pretty prominent um, way of interpreting the Bible that is satanic. It's, um, it follows the same pattern. It's to say, did God really say this? And I don't have in mind any particular issue, but I think there are several that are easily identifiable that you go, this feels confusing right now. So the questions go like this, did God really say that? Does he really mean that about these different topics? And then secondly, if he did say anything about it, is that actually true? Is that actually what it, what it means? And I think that the work of the devil persists in that way. And so even good, well-intentioned, you know, well-meaning Christians can read their Bibles and they can actually be enlisted in the work of the enemy because they are participating in his devilish Well, Jesus came to undo that, for sure. He came to be the one who really does show us what God is like. That's why John calls him the Word. And in fact, the writer of the Hebrew says he's the final Word of God. Jesus came to reveal to us what God is truly and actually like. And no matter how we might read our Bibles, when we begin to look at the life and ministry, the death and resurrection of Christ, we see God. He has come to destroy the work of the devil. Well, what should we do then? We should actually try to grow in our likeness to him. That's the overarching priority here in our passage. The thing that John is calling his readers and us to do is to grow in Christ-likeness. Begin to live in a way that is marked by obedience. Live in a way that is pleasing to God. Practice righteousness. Do things that actually align with the heart and the character of God. 
live in a way that's pleasing to him. Now, we can do this because we have hope. We are adopted into the family of God. Look at verse 1. There's a typo there. That's my fault. But it says, see what great love the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called children of God. And that, that's what we are. One of the reasons why we're motivated to pursue obedience is because of who we are. God has adopted us into his family, so we start living like his children. And we have hope in a future glory. Look at verses 2 and 3. But we know that when Christ appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. All who have this hope in him purify themselves just as he is pure. We have this hope of what's going to happen when Christ returns at the second advent and the transformation that will occur in us, and we will become like him no longer full of sin, but we will be like him. So in the meantime, what do we do? We have this future hope of what's going to happen when he returns, but right now we pursue righteousness. We purify ourselves just as he is pure. Now, he makes a pretty incredible claim that if you're following Christ, sin no longer should be a reality in your life in this way. Look at verse 6. No one who lives in him keeps on sinning. No one who continues to sin has either seen him or known him. Now, if you're, if you're tracking with me, what you should feel right now is, oh, crud. Right? Like if you, okay, hold on. So I admitted the problem with the world is me because I sin. Now it's saying that anyone who knows God does not go on sinning. And in fact, he puts it so so boldly to say no one who continues to sin has either seen him or known him. You go, man, this is not, this is not good news. W- what does he mean here? Now, we have to be careful with applying this. I want to show you a couple things just so that we make sure we're all tracking together. John does not mean that Christians are entirely without sin. In fact, back in chapter one, do you know what he says? Anyone who claims to be without sin is a liar and the truth is not in them. He's not saying that you can be, if you're a real Christian, you just don't do that anymore. It's just not even a possibility. You just don't do that. If you're a real Christian, you don't sin anymore. No, no, even in our passage, you can't maintain that way of thinking because what does he say? We, we are not yet what we will one day become. When Christ comes, then we become made in his image completely, entirely, permanently. But in the meantime, we still struggle. So what is he saying here? What is he saying here? in verses 6 and following. Well, the best illustration I've come across is from F.F. Bruce, a theologian, uh, a writer. He says, it's like a child who goes to a new school and inadvertently does not follow the rules of that school and so is reprimanded. And a schoolmaster or a teacher comes up and says something to that child like this, that, what you just did, that is not done here. Now, the teacher does not mean, that's impossible. You can't do that here. It just never happens here. No, it means that is not the appropriate behavior for the environment. That's something close to what I think John is getting at here. A Christian is someone who recognizes that to sin is inappropriate because we are children of God. He is without sin. He is pure. So we should be moving in that direction of purifying ourselves just as he is pure. We should not be comfortable with our sin. So what we're trying to do here then is we're navigating this narrow path of the gospel. We're trying to recognize that what John is getting at is on the one hand, uh, like the false teachers he's dealing with, 
there's a way to look at sin that says, look, it's not that bad. I mean, we all do it. Nobody's perfect. And just be dismissive of it. That's what he's trying to go against here. But on the other hand, we need to be careful not to fall off on the other side and to say, look, Christians need to be people who are absolutely perfect. We need to walk this narrow path of Christians are people who understand the severity of sin, understand the significance of it and its persistence within our own hearts and lives, and we are growing in increasing degrees of godliness. Well, both of those errors are troubling for different reasons, but let's keep pressing on. John says, look, you either are doing this or you're not sincere. Look at verses 7 and 8. Dear children, do not let anyone lead you astray. The one who does what is right is righteous, just as he is righteous. The one who does what is sinful is of the devil, because the devil has been sinning from the beginning. He says, look, there's no mushy middle here. You're either pursuing righteousness and living like the righteous one, or you are sinning and you are of the devil. So he makes it very plain for us, and we need to be able to evaluate our own hearts. And in fact, that's where he lands on this. He says, see where you land today. Evaluate yourself against this. Are you growing in godliness or not? Are you of God or are you of the devil? So by verse 10, he puts it like this. This is how we know who the children of God are and who the children of the devil are. Anyone who does not do what is right is not God's child. Now, most of us, you know, a churchy group like this, we love God, we love his word, we want to obey him. Most of us would nod our heads and go, okay, Cor, I'm tracking with you. We, the people of God, need to be obedient people. We need to hear the word of God, and we need to seek to obey the word of God. And so we need to be pursuing that. We need to be growing in our obedience, and, and it needs to show up. We need to be Bible readers and studying what God has said and then learning how to apply that. And most of us in here, I would imagine, are saying amen to that. Like, yes, Cor, we need to be people whose actual lives are reflecting the beauty and the majesty and the moral reality of Jesus himself. We should be obedient. Here's the problem. He puts a little barb on it at the end. Look at the end of verse 10. He doesn't just say, anyone who does not do what is right is not God's child. He goes on and he says this, nor is anyone who does not love their brother and sister. Now, this is a, an emphasis in John's writing over and over and over again. He connects the dots between living the way that God wants you to live and that showing up in the way that you deal with other people. It's not enough to simply know the Bible and agree that the Bible's a good thing. It actually needs to show up in the way that you handle other people. I know an awful lot of people who love, love, love the Bible, but they can't stand people. Now, here's what this is saying. That's not okay. That is not okay. That actually reveals an insincerity in your relationship with God. That if you just take the Bible and you say, look, everyone should be doing this just like I'm doing this. And I can't believe that people wouldn't live as the way that I want them to live. What is that saying? That is a problem. That is not of God. If you do not love your brother and sister. The early church father, Jerome, put it like this. He was talking about John's ministry, and he noted that toward the end of his ministry, he became too weak to go to, uh, to preach and to do the things that he previously loved to do. And so he would go to the church, and he would give this repeated exhortation to his congregation. He would say, little children, love one another. 
And when people asked him why he repeated that so often, he replied like this, because it is the Lord's command, and if you do that, it is enough. We need to be people who love others. And in fact, if we're claiming to be following God and we're trying to grow in our obedience, it's actually going to be manifest in the way that we deal with each other. Now, I said there's a barb in this because when I look at my own life, when I look at the lives of some of us, what I find is not love, but rage and malice and discontentment and hostility and all these things that are inappropriate for believers. And listen, God is inviting us back to his wonderful way that we should be a people who are following his leadership and loving other people. So we have an overarching priority, and that is to pursue righteousness and to do it in a way that reflects the heart of Christ, loving other people. Well, here's the incredible promise. It actually came in verse 2. The incredible promise is that Christmas isn't just about Jesus arriving as a baby. It is about that, but it's so much more. There's actually a second coming, a second arrival, and that will change everything. Look at verse 2. What we will be has not yet been made known, but we know that when Christ appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. Yes, he came in a manger. He lived humbly. But here's what's really incredible about the Bible. This was a surprising feature, that he decided that he was not going to come just once, but actually twice that he was going to have a division of labor where in the one instance he was coming with humility and he was coming with the invitation of, of grace and forgiveness, but he will come again and he will, he will f- complete his work, the work of judgment, the work of making all things right. And so, yes, he came and we celebrate that. And we have all sorts of different things during the Advent season to remind us of that reality, but we also need to be a people who are living in light of his second Advent. And that's what we find here in verse 2. When he appears again, we will be made like him. We will have our sin dealt with, taken away entirely and permanently. The work of the devil will be destroyed completely and never to return again. So he is coming again, and in the meantime, we have hope. Verse 3 tells us so. All who have this hope. And that word is used very different for them than we normally use it. We can say, oh, I hope this goes this way. And what we mean is, I'm not sure. It may or may not play out the way I want it to. In the first century, the way hope was used was, this is happening. I'm just waiting. I have a hope that Christ is going to return. And that means that in the meantime, I know it's going to happen. I've got some stuff to do right now but he will return and make all things new again. So that is the hope that we have. That is the incredible promise that changes the way that we live. We can make uh, our, our lives reflect the glory of Jesus Christ because we have hope in his return. So let's wrap this thing up. Why did Jesus come? He came to take away sins. He came to deal with my sin, with your sin. And that invitation is available to you today to trust in him for salvation. Secondly, he came to destroy the work of the devil. He came to do away with the misunderstandings and the misapplications of God's word. He came to do away with the evil one. What does that mean for us? It means that we can can experience salvation. We can experience forgiveness. 
And if we have that, we need to live like that. We need to begin to live in a way that is pleasing to him. What does Christmas mean for our future? It means that he's coming again. It means that when he comes, we will experience transformation like never before. And the confidence that we have in that promised moment inspires us to live like him in this present moment. He's coming again, so church, be ready. May we honor him with our obedience and love for one another as we celebrate his first arrival and anticipate his second. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that you would help us to be good news people, people who are both reflecting on the first arrival of our Lord and Savior and all that that means, the doing away of sin, the destruction of the devil's work. Lord, help us to reflect on that and let our lives begin to to display that beauty and that glory. Help us to grow in our obedience and let that obedience be seen in the way that we deal with other people. Let us love well, serve well, care well, all for your glory. Lord, we anticipate your second coming. As we take time during church services and during this season to pause and reflect, Lord, remind us that you are coming again. And what we are is not yet what we're going to be when we see you. We can't wait for that day when you make all things new, when you wipe away tears and there's no more sickness or death or pain for the old order of things is passing away. And the one on the throne said, see, I am making all things new. We cannot wait. Amen. Amen. If